This podcast is presented by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. One of the things that happens in this course is you get to hear several people, several voices talking about the Holocaust, the Shoah, the Korban. It's an honor and a privilege to have James Young as our visiting speaker today. He's a professor of English and Judaic Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where he has taught since 1988, and he's chair of the Department of Judaic and Near Eastern Studies there. He's also taught at New York University as a Dorot professor of English and Hebrew Judaic Studies, at Bryn Mawr College, the University of Washington, Harvard University, and Princeton University as a visiting professor. He received his PhD from the University of California, Santa Cruz, in 1983. Professor Young is the author of Writing and Rewriting the Holocaust, The Texture of Memory, and At Memory's Edge, After Images of the Holocaust in Contemporary Art and Architecture, which was published by Yale in 2000. The Texture of Memory won the National Jewish Book Award in 1994. He's also been the guest curator of an exhibition at the Jewish Museum in New York City entitled The Art of Memory, Holocaust Memorials in History, and was the editor of The Art of Memory, an exhibition catalog for this show. <coughs> In 1997, Professor Young was appointed by the Berlin Senate to the five-member commission for Germany's national memorial to Europe's murdered Jews, which selected Peter Eisenman's design and was finished and dedicated in May 2003. He's consulted with Argentina's government on its memorial to the desaparecidos as well as numerous city agencies on their memorials and museums. Most recently, he was appointed by the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation to the jury for the World Trade Center site memorial competition won by Michael Arad and Peter Walker and now under construction. James is going to talk to us First, about the Berlin Memorial to Europe's murdered Jews. If there's time, he's going to talk to us also about the New York City 9-11 Memorial. I hope you'll join me in welcoming him. He's going to talk on Berlin's Holocaust problem and mine. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Murray and Peter, and uh, all of UCSC. Um, uh, I was an undergraduate here, graduating in 73, and came back 
because uh, to the literature program here to do my PhD because um, only here do they understand um, why I wanted to write on Holocaust literature and only here would they let me actually write about just about anything I wanted related to Holocaust literature. Um, I told the story about actually uh, really becoming a humanist here at Santa Cruz and um, I just love the new Humanities Hall here. Yeah, so uh, I'm very glad to be back. Um, the Berlin Memorial to Europe's murdered Jews doesn't really have anything to do with the World Trade Center uh, site memorial design in lower Manhattan. But when we announced the winner of that site design competition in January 2004, won by Michael Arad and Peter Walker, one of the first uh, questions I had from a reporter was that he, he says that, um, so um, it's very interesting. You chose this design by Michael Abrad and Peter Walker called Reflecting Absence, two gigantic uh, voids in the ground at ground zero uh, in the footprints of the World Trade Center towers. Um, you chaired the design committee or the design jury for the Berlin Memorial, which you chose Peter Eisenman's design. Um, you've written widely on Holocaust memorials. Um, tell me, uh, hasn't everything just become a Holocaust memorial? And I was kind of taken aback, and I said, well, no, that's, that's crazy. Uh, um, yeah, they have nothing to do with each other, really. Um, but the question did get me thinking a little bit, <clears throat> because, of course, what he was after is this notion that the, the, the vernacular of memorials after World War II had become uh, so common in some ways that the Holocaust memorial had ended up defining what any memorial was going to look like. And again, I would have disagreed uh, with him about that. But then um, I remembered a conversation I'd had with Maya Lin in 1985, just about five years after her uh, Vietnam Veterans Memorial was, was unveiled, in which uh, we had given a talk together at the Harvard School of Design. <clears throat> I talked on Holocaust memorials, and she spoke on her design process for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And uh, she said, you know, um, it's just so fascinating to see all the Holocaust memorials because, uh, in fact, um, I owe a great debt to one of the earliest Holocaust memorials for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And I go, you're kidding. You know, how, how could that be? And she said, during my junior year in France, when I was at Yale in the architecture school, um, I discovered the memorial on the Ile de Licité, the memorial to the déporté, uh, French déporté, and um, she said that this design, I went and visited this every single day. It imprinted itself on me. And from there, I went to the Battle of the Somme uh, site, where there was another memorial by Lutens, which had been des designed just after World War I, this long, singular granite triangle. And she took the singular granite triangle, which she found repeated now in the design at the memorial for, Europe's, for France's murdered Jews, which was designed in 1956, in fact, in France, one of the earliest Holocaust memorials. And the minimalist aesthetic, <clears throat> the possibility for carving a space out in the ground, carving a space in the landscape, a negative space, which would open up a space within her to remember these events, was what drove her design for the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. And she saw that the space opened up in the landscape in Europe and the space opened up by this negative four monument in Paris, in which the artist-architect took 
triangular forms commemorating, of course, the, the triangle patch um, that uh, political prisoners mostly had worn. But of course, if the Jewish prisoners in the camps wore two triangular patches constituting a Jewish star, yellow and yellow or red and yellow, depending on the, their uh, status. And the artist here for the Paris Memorial, remember this was designed in 1955-56 by Henri Pangusson, wanted to create the sense of disappearing horizons. Instead of a triumphant monument in which you would look up and somehow feel humbled in the presence of a gigantic monolith, he wanted people to bow their heads, go down, descend into memory, into kind of a dark place, into a, a carved out space in the ground that would in turn carve out a space within them. So the forms kind of close in on you. The horizon closes in on you. He used some of the materials, as he's, uh, he's, he remembered um, uh, seeing in the, in the remains of the camps, the kind of the bunkerish-like materials here. And then use kind of these triangle form. Again, that triangle, remember, from Luton's memorial in, in the, at the Battle of the Somme, now taking the triangle, stylizing them, and turning them into almost a barbed wire, you know, kind of a oblique a reference to barbed wire, perhaps. This juts right out into the Seine. Behind us is, is the, um, the Notre Dame Cathedral, in fact, all in the same space. The triangles with the names of the camps. And again, that sense. So imagine Maya Lin sitting here in uh, 1978, <clears throat> kind of with her sketch pad, thinking about what she's doing. And then, in 1979, uh, she's taking a class. She's back at, for her senior year at Yale when uh, the class decides that uh, together they're going to enter the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Competition. It's an open blind competition. And she sits down with her sketch pad, and this is what she does as a 21-year-old senior at Yale in her dorm room, you know, sitting cross-legged on her bed sketching. And uh, she submitted this to the design competition. And of course, um, at first glance, nobody knew what to make of it. Um, I heard stories of the jurors taking it like this and like this and like this, trying to figure out exactly what it was. And then um, one juror on this, um, uh, on this process um, took this design along as a passion vote. Um, nobody else got it, but he kept dragging it forward into the next stage of the competition until at the very last stage, he said, um, we've, I know this is it, but I don't know why. So they sat down. And then they realized what she had done. Completely minimalist aesthetic, clearly. Something carved into the ground to counterpoint all the gigantic uh, you know, uh, neoclassic uh, obelisks and columns of Washington, D.C. architecture. Um, she took a black form to counterpoint the gigantic white forms. Um, it was really designed as what I've come to call the very first counter monument, a monument countering all the traditional monument features in Washington, and all the gigantic, positive, triumphalist kind of architecture, usually associated with the states commemorating its own founding and coming into being. Here she wanted to, she was asking the question, how do we remember a war and its veterans that, in fact, we've more or less not just neglected, but have rejected? And when the Vietnam vets were coming home from the Vietnam War, in fact, they were rejected, spat upon, um, really shunted aside completely. And she wanted to find a form that would articulate America's ambivalence toward memory of the Vietnam War. And this is the design she came up with, America's, I think, greatest post-war, actually 20th century monument. 
One side, of course, points to the Washington Memorial Monument, and one side points to the Lincoln Monument. And she's created a space into which you descend, a negative space in the ground, an open wound in the earth, that would not try to repair the memory so much as create a space within those who came looking. And of course, as they come down, they're not now defeated by some gigantic form, but in fact, they're confronted with their own faces in these design, in, in the design itself, their own reflections. This memorial now becomes about them, about those who come looking for memory. And so it reflects right back to them their own preoccupations, their own faces, literally, in fact. She inscribed the names on this design, on, this, uh, on the wall, not in alphabetical order, which would be very arbitrary, but she, the names are inscribed here uh, in the order in which these soldiers were killed during the war, all now nearly 59,000 names. So she's created in this display of names a chronology of their deaths, basically. Um, much better, obviously, than coming to you know, uh, 300 uh, Bill Joneses, you know, one after the other. Now each one is relocated, embedded in the historical moment of his death not just spread out arbitrarily and uh, alphabetically. Uh, the veterans uh, voted unanimously for it on the jury. The jury, in fact, voted unanimously for it. Eventually, a figurative statue was added by a, a disgruntled uh, uh, applicant to the process, Frederick Hart, um, funded by Ross Perot, its own kind of difficult, somewhat uh, uh, painful process. But um, it really pales in comparison to the Vietnam Veterans Mon Monument here. Now, why show this <clears throat> when we're talking about both the World Trade Center Memorial and the Berlin Memorial? Um, when I was asked to chair the design competition process for the, Viet for the Berlin Memorial to Europe's Murdered Jews, um, it was because I'd already been writing quite widely on memorials and had curated this um, exhibition in, in New York, which went to Berlin and then to Munich. Um, but because I also felt that the, the Germans had come up with something um, on their own that uh, was now unique to memorial culture. Uh, they were the first to ask themselves how to find a form that would commemorate Germany's own destruction of, of a people. That is, how does a nation like Germany remember a crime perpetrated in its name? How does a nation like Germany rebuild itself on the bedrock memory of its crimes? It had never been done before. Um, where on the Washington, D.C. Mall is there even one pebble recalling the slave auctions which had been held on the mall 300 years ago? Not, not a sign of it. We now have the Museum to African American History just off of the mall as part of the Smithsonian, but there's still not even a rock on that mall recalling that the slave auctions were actually held there. Nations don't build their memorial cultures around memory of crimes perpetrated in that nation's name. It's never been done. Nations build memorial cultures and legacies around the memory of their so-called divine election, around their martyrdoms, around their, around their own triumphs, but never around the memory of a crime perpetrated in their name. And yet Germany was attempting to, to do just this. And um, so, in fact, during the first process in 1995, I was, I was one of the critics who said, I don't think it can be done. I said, in fact, um, better a thousand years of Holocaust memorial competitions in Germany than any final solution to your problem. You have an insoluble conundrum, and you should leave it insoluble. Don't look for a conclusion. Don't look for a solution to it. Don't look for a, a result 
Look for a process. Look for a constant working through. And in that working through, you will not find repair, but you will define your relationship to this time. Find a form maybe that articulates that question, but don't try to find a form that articulates the answer, because I don't think there is an answer. And it was on that basis, um, uh, kind of a, a talk I gave to the, to the Bundestag um, in 97, actually, that they asked me to join uh, a, a process which had already failed. In 1995, they'd held a competition, uh, had received some 500 uh, submissions from around the world, chose something that didn't work, and so went back to the drawing board with a series of symposia to ask themselves kind of a self-flagellating question. Why can't, we, why can't we do this? Why can't we get it right? And um, I came in and said that every nation struggles with memory in its own way. Israel had its own struggles with uh, memory around the day of Holocaust remembrance there, around Yad Vashem. The United States struggled mightily to build its U.S. Holocaust Memorial, Yale Museum. In every case, these memorials reflect a nation's own reasons for being, a nation's own relationship to these events. And Germany's is, is uh, the most complicated, most fraught relationship to this past of all the countries. Israel knows exactly why it's remembering in the end. The United States thinks it knows exactly why it's remembering. Of course, the United States remembers the Holocaust in Washington in order to counterpoint American self-idealizations, um, to show what America is by what it's not. Poland has a very complicated relationship to this past as well, but Germany has the most complicated relationship. So in that competition in 1995, we have Horst Hoheisel uh, proposing here something um, along the lines of Maya Lin. He said that um, what we need to remember is not the, um, not the terrible destruction, but the void left behind. How do we commemorate the void, the absence of Europe's Jews, without filling it in? in some positive form. Hoheisel proposed in his design to blow up the Brandenburger Tor, to spread its remains over the whole site, and then to cover it over with great granite plates. Only here would people actually be able to come and find the memory within themselves for which they searched. Rather than commemorating one destruction with the construction of a giant edifice, commemorate the destruction with yet another destruction. That, for him, was, the, was, was a kind of an ethical obligation. And of course, here his preoccupation is with absence. Create the open space. And he was very glad to acknowledge that he learned this from Maya Lin, as did almost every one of the German artists and architects I had talked to. Maya Lin was a revelation, or her design was a revelation for this whole generation of German memorial makers who now saw for the first time a vocabulary, a kind of an architectural vernacular, to articulate something they'd been struggling with. Rather than redeeming such terrible loss with a positive form, open the space up. Recall the wound. Don't try to fill it in. It's a breach that cannot be, cannot be mended. This led in 1986 to Jochen and Esther Gertz's uh, Harburg column, disappearing column. They won this competition by proposing just to build kind of an ugly 12-meter-tall pillar covered in soft lead that would, in fact, counter every one of the memorial's general uh, conventional principles. Here they ask people to add their names to ours, and as more and more names cover this 12-meter-tall you know, column, uh, it will gradually be sunk into the ground. One day it will have disappeared completely, and the site of the Harburg Monument against fascism will be empty. And then this last sentence is, is so telling. In the end, it is only we ourselves who can rise up against injustice. This German generation has a deep skepticism of memorials. 
They fear, in fact, that we build memorials to do remembering for us, that we build memorials as kind of symbolic gestures against contemporary persecution, when in fact we're the only ones who can rise up against injustice. So they would like to build a memorial that disappears, that returns the memorial burden to those who come looking for it, leaving, if you will, only us in that square to stand up and rise up against injustice. They really had this, um, this kind of the, the skeptical view that memorials had, in fact, become a substitute for contemporary action against contemporary persecutions, that we do all of our, you know, where we should be actually intervening, say, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, we build just another memorial to some past catastrophe. And she says, stop building memorials and start intervening. Or if you're going to build a memorial, create a space in the landscape for us to stand there and do something. And that's, again, it's a, a very a contemporary motion, notion, but again inspired a little bit by, by Maya Lin. So sure enough, the local citizens came out in 1986 and began adding their names. And uh, over time, uh, all kinds of things got added. Swastikas got uh, you know, scratched into the surface. People painted on it. People took ice picks and stabbed it and tried to pull the skin off. And then the town became upset and said, um, OK, this has become a kind of an ugly trap for graffiti and all kinds of filth. I think we should tear it down. And the artist said, you're tearing it down. Just keep filling it up, and it'll keep sinking. That's how you get rid of it. Participate. And in the process, of course, the memorial revealed what a memorial can do by what it can't do. Instead of remaining everlasting and kind of um, you know, existing in perpetuity, this memorial would now disappear. Instead of um, re retaining some kind of a, what they call it, would have regarded as a false sense of decorum, this memorial invited its own violation, its own desecration, invited the participation of passers-by in order to emblazon their names on here so you would get rid of it. Um, of course, they saw the whole performance as kind of a parable for Germany's fraught relationship to Holocaust memory. How do you remember something you'd rather forget? By getting rid of it. They saw in that whole performance, they saw this is a, a place for the memorial to do what it can do best. And so sure enough, over time, about every oh, four or five months, it would sink until it was finally sunk altogether in 1993. It got shorter and shorter. I talked to the artist later, and kind of with the rise in the xenophobia just after the wall came down, uh, they suggested that you know maybe they should um, allow the memorial to come up with the rise in anti-Semitism and go back down, <laughs> with a, or kind of like a barometer. <laughs> but uh, they don't. It's disappeared completely. It's smaller and smaller <clears throat> until, in the end, the site for the Harburg Memorial is now empty, and only now we who stand there become the memorial for which we search. In Saarbrücken, uh, Jochen Gertz was invited to uh, be a guest professor uh, at the uh, Institute of Art there, and uh, had a memorial, uh, convened a memorials class <clears throat> um, in which he uh, uh, asked his students to take a kind of a vow of secrecy. Half the class went out and stole cobblestones from around the town. They took these cobblestones and put them uh, in the spaces of cobblestones they removed from this great plaza at the Zarbrück, uh, at the kind of the Schloss uh, here at the plaza for the, for the castle, which had been Gestapo headquarters during the war. They took the stones from the plaza here back to the classroom where the rest of the class was researching all the names and sites of every single destroyed Jewish German cemetery um, between 1933 and 1945, some 2,000, uh, uh, some 1,260 uh, of these cemeteries in Germany. 
they inscribed on these stones, they, they cut into the stone the name of the cemetery with, and dating the, the operation. And then they returned them to the plaza at night, put them back in the plaza. But of course, this is a, a Jochen Gerts class, so they, they returned them inscribed side down, so there's no trace of the operation. Completely invisible. It's now called the, the, the Plaza of the Invisible Monument. And then they announced what they'd done. So all the townspeople came down to the square to see what there was. And of course, they found nothing. And the students stood around them and explained that look within yourselves for the memory which you have come here to find. You find, look within. It is inside you. Only you can remember. The memorial can never remember for you. Again, setting up this, this dialogue. Here's the space. We've created an open space here. Would you come and you remain the only standing forms or you know, receivers of, of memory here? Similarly, Hoheisel, who had uh, designed the, to you know, propose to blow up the, uh, the Brandenburger uh, tour, proposed a memorial to the uh, Ashrod Brunnen, a, a fountain, Ashrod's fountain in Kassel, dedicated uh, and donated to the city by a local uh, Jewish philanthropist, um, which was right in the town square. It was destroyed in 1938 by Nazi hooligans, uh, who called it the Jews' fountain. And so the town in 1986 wanted to replace it. Hoheisel re proposed not replacing it, but with Maya Lin in mind. And by, remember, he had no idea about the Harburg Monument at this time. It was done exactly the same notion, but it really reflects the, that, um, the, uh, the spirit of the moment. Um, he decided to build the same monument, but into the ground, into the negative space, and allow water. Instead of water flowing up from it, water would flow down into it. And so this is what you have. This is the, 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 the monument to the Ashrod Fountain in Kassel, which is a fountain commemorating the, um, uh, the deportation of Kassel's Jews in 1942 and 43. And again, Hohe without any reference to, to, uh, to the Harburg Monument, uh, said that um, he wanted to create a pedestal, a base. He didn't want to create a monument. He wanted a, a pedestal onto which the visitors would step and become the form, the monumental form for which they searched. That is, let them look within themselves. Only here will they find it. So this preoccupation with absence, with the void, with the destruction, with, with the great emptiness left behind was now driving a whole generation of memorial makers in Germany who really uh, were quite cynical about what they regarded as a fascist form of architecture. The monument, they felt, was something authoritarian, a gigantic monolith telling people what to think, a gigantic form kind of um, um, turning, uh, kind of diminishing the people who come there to, to look at it, making them feel very small. This was another process. Um, Michel Ullmann, an Israeli living in, in uh, Germany, won the competition for memorial to the book burnings at the Babelplatz. Uh, the Nazi book burnings in 33 and 34 you know, were well documented, and um, in trying to commemorate it, once again, he said that you, know, you can't replace those books. They're gone. And many of the authors are gone too, unfortunately. The enemies, so-called enemies of the Reich, which included lots of non-Jewish German authors you know, regarded by the Reich as enemies. Many of them uh, went into uh, uh, forced emigration. And uh, many of them, of course, were Jewish authors. So he said that uh, rather than creating some kind of figurative statuary on this, on this square, he built a room, a library room, bibliotheque, beneath the square. The middle uh, form is a window. Uh, the two plaques, one describes the book burnings in 33 and 34 at the Babelplatz in Berlin. The other is a, a, a tablet with Heinrich Heine's you know, 
famously prescient words, you know, where books are burned, so too one day will people be burned as well. And he wanted to create a place where, in fact, the only standing forms on this plaza are the people who come looking for memory. And to find it here, they stand over the window, and they look down, and they see a room of empty shelves. Memory is now articulated. The memory of absence is now articulated by absence, by emptiness. Not filled in, not compensated, not redeemed. What's gone is gone. And we have to remember what's gone is gone. It's lost, and it's not filled back in. There's nothing you know, redeeming, nothing reassuring about this. This motif of the book, by the way, was picked up again by Rachel Whiteread in Vienna, um, who um, has made really her work was using what she called, what she used material as an index for absence. She was best known in 1984 for filling in the inside of a row house in London before it was about to be torn down with concrete and then pulling all the form of the house away, leaving only the empty space of the house now formally concretized so that basically you had only empty space but now concretized, you know, now articulated somehow, formalized. She won the competition for this memorial in Berlin by creating a design which would concretize just the space between the leaves of books in the library and the wall. So this memorial to uh, Austria's murdered Jews set on the Judenplatz in Vienna would now only be um, about the, the people of form referring to the people of the book now murdered. Here she would refer to the culture lost, to the space, not to the, not to the objects, but to that space in a very metaphorical way. Again, this was chosen uh, unanimously by the jury, a jury which included Robert Storr, uh, the head curator at the Museum of Modern Art at the time, and which was finally built there after much controversy. Part of the problem here in Vienna was that the Judenplatz was named, in fact, because this had been the site of a, a, a pogrom in 1421 in which the synagogue located here had been filled with, all, with local Jews and then burned to the ground, auto de fe, burning all the, all the Jews of this neighborhood. Um, when, ex when they began excavations for this memorial, in fact, they found the remains of this auto de fe, and so stopped construction moved this memorial over a little bit and decided both to include the excavation of that ancient pogrom and a memorial to the more recent uh, uh, mass murder of Jews during World War II. Um, when some of the townspeople, local, some of the locals objected, they said, well, we already have a memorial. Maybe we don't need this one. Uh, Rachel Whiteread replied, yes, you do. And your memorial is, is explained in the church just around the corner. And so she took them in to remind them that in this uh, uh, a big tapestry uh, in the church just around the corner, there was a picture of, um, of, of Jesus uh, standing on the Jordan River. Um, underneath it said, um, on this site in 1421, it says this in Latin, that on this site in 1421, the crimes of the Hebrew dog, the flames of hate arose against the, the Hebrew dogs to punish them for their crimes. That was the explanation for the pogrom in 1421. It was a, basically a, an, a, an apology, yeah, but it was uh, self-exculpating at the same time. She said, is that how you want to remember it? And I said, no. So they went ahead and they, and they built this. Shimon Ati uh, from San Francisco, actually born in LA, living in San Francisco, moved to Berlin in 1990, just after the wall came down, and was uh, struck by what he didn't see. 
and how to project back onto these sites what was now lost, he went down and looked at the uh, went into the archives, researched uh, hundreds of photographs from the archives, turned them into slides, and then at night he went back out into Berlin and found the original sites where these photographs had been taken and projected them back onto the walls. These wall projections were meant in some way, they were meant to be ephemeral, so they once projected, anybody who saw them, he hoped, would now take the memory of what had once been there away with them, so that a, a Hebrew bookseller, for example, is just almost as if this, the, the, the bookstore there had, um, uh, it's like a palimpsest. You could kind of peel away the facade and see what lies beneath. And he did this in about 60 sites um, around Berlin, and uh, basically as a, as a reminder that whenever we go out and we look at a site, the sites themselves don't remember anything. They depend on our own projections of mind, and in this case, uh, his own projection of his mind's eye, what he knew had been here projected onto these sites. And sure enough, people came out, and some of them were angry that uh, they were being accused somehow. And he said, I'm not accusing anybody of anything. But they became great screens against which all would now project their own preoccupations, their own fraught relationship to this past. And they also uh, were quite kind of beautiful things to regard in that, in that moment. But like Jochen Geritz and like Hohheisel, he was this artist, this American artist now living in Berlin, was very preoccupied with absence by what he hadn't seen. And he wanted to show this without redeeming it. In some ways, this is maybe some of the most beautiful of the, of the art. And he didn't mean for it to be too beautiful, but it was a reminder that basically once these projections were turned off, that we had to take them away inside us, basically. This is a, a project, a great one, by Sti and Schnuck, but I won't go into it um, here just because I want to move to the Berlin, uh, rest of the Berlin process. This was the people's favorite, actually, in the failed 1995 competition. Um, when we were uh, uh, appointed in 1997 <clears throat> to basically begin a new competition, appointed by the, um, the Bundestag, the, the Berlin Senate, <clears throat> um, and by the Citizens' Initiative Committee in Berlin, uh, they allowed us to invite 25 artists and architects. <clears throat> we went down and basically took the top 25 finalists from the earlier competition, uh, gave them a, a chance to redo their works, this one uh, was proposed by uh, Reinhard uh, Matz, <coughs> a photographer, and Rudolf Hertz, who decided that they would um, take uh, one kilometer of the Autobahn and pave it in cobblestones and call that the memorial to Europe's murdered Jews so that people would have to just stumble upon this. Um, there's a little bit of a, an echo here of the, um, the, uh, the Stumble of Stone, the Stolpersteine project in, in Berlin, or in, in Germany right now in which an artist has taken these little stones um, uh, engraved with the name of somebody who lived in the house next to it and just raised it ever so slightly above the ground so that as you walk out, you really trip over it. You keep tripping over the memory of the, of the people, you know, who had, the Jews who had once lived in these homes. And this one they wanted people just to happen upon. So they're roaring down the Autobahn at you know, 90 miles an hour and suddenly have to slow down to 40 kilometers an hour, I think, or 30 kilometers an hour here, no doubt cursing the memory of the Jews every bump of the way. Um, but they didn't want people to have to make a deliberate pilgrimage. They wanted people to be reminded suddenly, spontaneously, as part of their daily lives, and not something that they, had, that they could be prepared for, but to suddenly to be surprised by the memory of Europe's murdered Jews. This wasn't chosen. Daniel Liebeskind proposed a gigantic broken wall, an extension, really, of his Berlin Museum, the Jewish Museum, the voids which he had built into his museum, now extended into the space. 
But what's nice about this image is that you see the space chosen for the Berlin Memorial is absolutely dead central to Berlin, to the topography of Berlin. You've got the Brandenburger Tor, you've got the Reichstag up here on the upper left, the Brandenburger Tor, you've got the memorial, and then Potsdamer Platz, just kind of where we're, where we're standing, uh, where the picture is being taken from, in a way. Um, <clears throat> completely central. Uh, the Berlin Wall had once bisected, in fact, this, this very space. So it was really kind of a so-called no man's land with barbed wire and, and uh, a minefield there. Um, we, didn't, we didn't take the Liebeskind design uh, for a couple of different reasons. First, uh, we were worried that actually since the wall had come down, maybe in three or, uh, 30 or 40 years, a generation might think that this was a remnant of the Berlin Wall, in fact. Uh, we also saw this as an extension of the Jewish uh, Museum, and we didn't want to see this as an extension of the Jewish Museum. We, we actually wanted a freestanding something that would commemorate Germany's own relationship to it and not make it a Jewish site. This was, after all, a memorial proposed by Germans for Germans. Jewish Germans left behind in, in Germany now said they already had their own means for remembrance. They didn't need a National Holocaust Memorial to remind them that this was by the Germans for the Germans. The design we actually first liked best was this one by Gesina Weinmiller, um, scattering uh, 18 segments of limestone wall, the limestone blocks probably recalling, uh, she hoped, uh, the Kotel, the great blocks of the Western uh, Wall in Jerusalem. 18, of course, signifying uh, in, in Hebrew gematria, chai, uh, for life. And um, she built into this what seemingly scattered design. And remember uh, now Maya Lin's you know, negative form. This is also something you have to walk down into. As you walk into it, the walls actually begin to take away the horizon. They kind of close you into the city, uh, close the cityscape out of view and out of sound. And then you have to find your own way in and through these. There's no prescribed path that everybody, in a way, has to come to remember for themselves here, which she wanted. We also noticed as we walked along this, this might be a little out of focus. I don't know. Can you, can you see? As, as you walk along this wall and come to that lower right-hand corner and peer out, this is, remember, about a five-acre site. It's a huge site that the, the seemingly randomly scattered pieces of the wall actually congeal into a Jewish star. And as you keep walking, it comes apart. So as you walk, it comes together. As you keep walking, it, it falls apart. We weren't sure whether this was too gimmicky, but she didn't point it out. We discovered it on our own. And then we asked her about this. She says, yes, it's intentional, but I want people to find this on their own. This is something that we you know, would recall to people that they need to constitute the memorial here in their interaction with it, in this kind of perspectival um, illusion. In the end, we chose Peter Eisenman and Richard Serra's proposal for a field of Stelle. Um, they initially proposed 4,200 of these forms, ranging from uh, ground level to almost 28 feet high. Um, a little bit like Richard Serra's work. You think of his torqued ellipses, um, some of his, um, his tilted arc, which was installed and then taken out of the Federal Plaza in downtown New York. Um, we loved the idea. Um, they wanted to take what they called the individual forms of mourning, something like the tombstone, and collectivize it, but create a space, in fact, which was not reassuring. These are not like perfectly um, straight. Uh, it's not, this is not a military cemetery, but this is one that you would walk into and get lost immediately, because all of these would be about three degrees off plumb. Um, you would never be able to see the end of the row. You would get completely lost. You would be oppressed. 
we called it the Venus flytrap of Holocaust memorials. It looked like something that would, in fact, just consume as many rememberers as you know, would come to it. Um, but we did, uh, we were kind of an interventionist jury, and so we decided to go back to Eisenman and, and Sarah and propose modifications. Instead, if you can, if you can make it smaller, make it less bombastic, make it more of what we might regard as a, as a counter memorial, uh, let's see what we can, we'll see what we can do with it. This was the site of it at that time. See, completely empty space. You can see there's the, the Berlin Wall, and that's the site. Berlin, um, the Hitler's bunker, by the way, is just, if you look at the top of the flag there on the, on the Brandenburger Tor, right where that flag is, is a little kind of weedy kind of parking lot, little parking area, and that's Hitler's bunker. That's how close it was. There's no marker for Hitler's bunker, of course. The only way you know where it is is when you're waiting, you will watch a group of tourists come with a tour leader with a little flag, and then they always stop, and they look down, and you can see them talking. That's Hitler's bunker. Then they move on, and there's nothing there. And this was the site as it was carved out before anything was there. And of course, many people, including Stephen Greenblatt, you know, who had just come to Harvard, who was visiting at the, um, I think, the Wissenschaftskolleg, or, or maybe at the Berlin Academy, proposed just leaving this completely empty, the great void perhaps being the greatest memorial, which is, which is again, something in keeping with, um, uh, with my own thinking. Uh, but in fact, uh, I saw, uh, and the jurors saw, the, a possibility for creating a form here which would on the one hand, be stitched into the fabric of the town. On the other hand, be completely otherworldly. And in the end, Peter uh, Eisenman uh, scaled down the size of the Stelle. We were worried, in fact, that kids would be running out over the top of them and falling in between, that it was literally physically a dangerous place. And Richard Serrett said, you know, my work is always dangerous. And Peter said, part of the point is that we want to show that memory is a dangerous thing. We, we want people to feel threatened. It's an ominous thing. And, this, and people should be slightly scared of this place. And we said, yes, figuratively speaking, we go along with that. Literally, we don't want people dying here. So scale it down, and they did. Reduce the number from, to about uh, 2,777, and uh, opened up space around for commemorating, uh, put trees in uh, along the edges to kind of buffer it from the city a little bit, and to um, scale down the size of the actual Stelle from as big as they were, you know, some 28 feet high now, the tallest now is about uh, 10 or 12 foot feet high, which actually feels very, very big when you're in the middle, as I discovered, you know, once it was dedicated. Dedicated, I think, May 2005. I think maybe I mis mis miswrote 2003. But it was dedicated finally in 2005. <clears throat> and this was while it was still under construction. Uh, I went and, and wandered through a little bit. Um, underneath one quadrant, um, we proposed adding a, uh, a document house or a document center, place, an or, uh, a place of information, which is a small museum that you descend into, one from the field, or you can descend into it from outside the field, so that, in fact, you know what this form is now anchored in. The form needed to be anchored in history. It's an abstract form. It needed an historical counterpoint in some ways, so that, in the end, in fact, the design included... The, um, the possibility of these stele seeming to go into the space below so that literally these stele would be anchored in an historical narrative, which you would find in going downstairs. You see how central it is. 
the forms themselves, they're completely uninscribed. They're meant to be underdetermined. Um, people do write graffiti on them. We propose as part of the, uh, the jury that, in fact, you allow the graffiti to stand for uh, seven days and then take it off so that, in fact, um, people might be confronted with their, uh, their, own, their, their own projections onto the site. Remember when the Gertz monument was completely defaced, uh, the artist said, well, isn't the swastika, too, a kind of a signature? Let the people see what they write on these things. Let it stand. This, this too, is a form of memory, for better or worse. And now you see, actually, as you descend into it, that it is actually a, it's an oppressive place. You can get out, but the point is that you would go down into the site... And you remember together and separately. <clears throat> Everybody goes in, they find their own space, but then they're reminded that there are others in the space. So it's a constant um, tension, if you will, between kind of a, a, a collected memory of many people's disparate memories, even competing memories in this site, and your own very private, very personal memory. And this is something that the memorial actually asks of all of us. And this is why I think the Vietnam Veterans Monument, you know, Maya Lin's design, works so well because it forces everybody to remember in the company of others, even as you're in some ways confronted with your own face. It's your relationship between you and these names of, of soldiers lost. And in this site, too, you remember in the company of others, you can look out over the tops of these stele and see other people, but occasionally you, you go in and you actually see nobody. You're completely alone. But it is a public space, and so it's going to be used publicly. This is the uh, underground design. It's now four, four rooms <clears throat> with the killing process itself, <clears throat> the aftermath, a room of names, and what they call a, um, a, a room of kind of silence and meditation. And here you, you get the sense of the stele coming in. In fact, it's an illusion. They're not the actual stele coming in. But as you go down, they almost hang like you know, stalactites in some ways, and part of the exhibition is mounted on them. But you get this yin and yang between history underneath, and memory above. Abstract memory anchored in, in kind of positive history. The controversy hasn't gone away. The memorial is still controversial. I think some, some still hate it. Many like it. Many, many love it. But it's now unavoidable. It's a central part of Berlin's um, uh, topography and landscape. And this is now what it looks like as you look out over the top of this waving field. It's a waving field, so that they're meant, these forms, otherwise static, are meant to, meant to suggest kind of animacy and movement. It's almost like a waving field of wheat. And in fact, just as we had feared, on the one hand, people really do find private moments here. It's, it's open 24 hours a day. People are constantly coming and going. Is that a slide hanging up there? There are images, actually, of people um, I have jumping over the top, which is something that we thought might happen, in fact, which did. But, in fact, this is a public space, which is going to be um, lived in as public space. Tourists taking pictures. It looks like you can make them all fall.
And, and there's nothing we want to be able to do about that. So just like graffiti, um, people will come and live in these sites as they will live in them. People take picnics on top of these stones. They have tourists come. They give lectures. They walk out over the tops, just as we were afraid. They nap. They sunbathe. They make, basically, this site a part of their daily lives, which is, which is part of the point here. It's now stitched into the fabric um, of Berlin. It's unavoidable, in a way. So I came back to that question. I know that Peter Eisman was influenced by the Maya design. I know that he was also preoccupied with the inadequacy of the monument, with kind of voids left behind, creating spaces, basically, as big as the objects, so spaces for people to walk into, but to be confronted you know, with their own humanity in a way. These are the size of these monuments um, don't, don't make you feel small. In, in, these, in the counter monuments. They basically confront us with our you know, own humanly proportioned uh, shapes in some way. Um, what I realized was that art and architecture, like literature and philosophy, even music after World War II, um, didn't have, like, it, it wasn't completely broken the way that art and culture, I think, were broken after World War I. There really was a revolution in, in thinking um, after World War I. I think most, of, most art and literature really did change. Um, but after World War II, there was no longer um, kind of something reassuring about civilized forms, a little bit like World War I. And artists and architects and musicians and writers and philosophers now became a little bit preoccupied with those spaces between words, with silences. Think of the great poets you're reading in here, you know, like um, uh, Don Pagis, you know, and the great you know, silence at the end of his you know, poem, you know, lines written in a ra railway car. Um, Levinas is preoccupied by silences. Um, uh, all the great uh, writers and historians, even Saul Freelander, is trying to figure out how to write silences into his uh, normative histories uh, of the Holocaust. Those pauses, those things which kind of destabilize a very closed and certain narrative somehow. So I realized that art and architecture itself have been inflected by the Holocaust in large ways. Doesn't, it doesn't make every memorial now a Holocaust memorial, but it does show that after the Holocaust, art, architecture, music, philosophy have all been inflected by this preoccupation with unredeemable absence, unredeemable loss, um, uh, something, um, something that cannot be compensated with the preoccupation with the form that might articulate this loss without filling it in. And that's kind of where we ended up then in New York City with a memorial uh, reflecting absence, which is, in fact, two gigantic holes, 200 feet square, in the ground, water 30 feet down, water flowing, waterfalls flowing into them, but then a further gaps, further holes at the very bottom going all the way down to bedrock. Um, reflecting absence then is um, filled on top with groves of trees, which are meant, in fact, to increase the volumes of the voids so that they're not just 70 feet deep, but now with the trees another 30 feet high. These are 100-foot deep voids built in the city uh, in a place that's now you know, um, brought back to ground level so that you walk out and then you're confronted with these gigantic 200-foot square voids, exactly the shape of the World Trade Center towers, you know, now lost. Now, I do have those pictures, and I'm, everything depends on time. What are we? We OK, do we have time to look at those? We can, I can show you some of those pictures, too. And I'll go through. And um, I reminded um, both 
the kind of the German Bundestag not to worry about the end result. The point is just to honor the process somehow. You might not, we might not reach an end result. And I said, in fact, I agree to serve on this jury only if we in the end can even disown uh, all these designs and never pick one. Um, we want to find a design that articulates the question and that does not answer it. And in New York, kind of the same thing. Within days of the attacks, I was called into uh, the mayor's office and the governor's office to tell them how to commemorate this, these attacks. And I said, well, why me? And why do you need to do it now? And they said, well, we have to. You know, for all kinds of reasons, we've got to begin rebuilding. Rebuilding must, regard, you know, must include the memorial. I said, okay, well, um, I, I would take a step back because, in fact, one week after the attacks, there is no memory because the, the, the event is unfolding. We don't even know what the event is yet. We don't know what, memory, what the memory means. Before you can propose a memorial, you need to know what, what it is you're trying to remember and what the meaning of this loss is. And we don't know yet. The only people who know the meaning of the loss at the World Trade Center attacks are those who lost families. And they said, they said you're right. And I said, what I would do is take a page from Jewish mourning tradition and um, realize that you know, the first seven days of a loss, you know, you, we would sit Shiva. You sit, you, re, you remember loss, and you feel that pain of loss, and you suffer that loss. And for the first 30 days, you observe kind of a, a shloshim, where, in fact, you don't go out and you know, party. If you're a traditional male, you don't shave. Um, and then one year after that loss or death in Jewish tradition, you raise a matzeva, a, a tombstone, and dedicate it, thereby having internalized the loss and then externalized it in the landscape and then go to visit it. And so you, you incorporate that loss into your, into your life before externalizing it in a form. And I said, you need to give it that respectful time. Give it time. And don't worry about what it's going to be. Just give it the space it needs. And so sure enough, they conducted all kinds of uh, you know, competitions for the you know, site design itself, but not the memorial. And eventually, they started the memorial competition process. And I said, if you want to think of it this way, think of the memorial as having already begun. Let's see. I think he's adjusting. I'm not sure why he's not going. that the memorial began with the attacks themselves, that moment of destruction. It began in the, in the faces of the people who watched it and the recorded, the photographs of these people's faces. And it began with the very first flyers and candlelight vigils. Think of the memorial spreading out, not, not just in the site, but, but everywhere. So what's to be commemorated? The terrible moment of destruction witnessed by millions around the world. in some ways reflected in the faces of the people who saw it. Remember, it, didn't happen, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in relationship to us. Conveyed, talked about, thought about in the moment. And then the candlelight vigils that very same night. That's where the memorial began. Think of it as a stages of memory. Not, not a final answer, not a result, not the bottom line. Vigils were held around the country and around the world to commemorate the losses of the World Trade Center attacks. Of course, the candlelight vigils in themselves are recalling a very traditional memorial motif, lighting a candle as a way to, to, to find comfort, to ward off the darkness uh, felt in, the, in such a loss, to recall kind of the, the flickering and ephemerality of life. And then, of course, the very first epitaphs were these posters 
plastered all over the city. Have you seen my father, my brother, my sister, my son, my daughter, my aunt, my uncle, with descriptions of who these people were? Missing, absent, missing, already preoccupied with the loss over all else, people's faces you know, whom they'd never see again. So there were people in New York and surrounding communities, in fact, who knew what this attack meant. It meant the direct loss of a loved one. Again, that preoccupation with absence was almost from the very first instant a, a motif and something that everybody felt as they wandered around the city looking at these signs. And of course, they described them, you know, who they were, who their parents were. Think of, think of a tombstone inscription and how they're also describing mother, father, et cetera, you know, what they did, their age, and that's what we had on these basically ephemeral tombstone epitaphs spread all over, the, all over the city at this point, but missing over and over again, absent, lost. And what was also lost, of course, for most New Yorkers who didn't know anybody were the towers themselves. Now the towers, the absent towers became a preoccupation. They were so used to seeing them. New Yorkers didn't especially like the two towers, but when they were gone, they loved them. They couldn't orient themselves anymore. And so that's what's being commemorated. Isn't it interesting? I mean, here's candles lighted for the missing towers, in effect. And this actually became an issue when they met, went to commemorate uh, with the so-called tribute, tribute and light were first called Towers of Light. And they said, what are, you, are you commemorating the towers destroyed or are you commemorating the lives lost? The lives, okay, so let's call it Tribute and Light. I mean, already there was this, a little bit of a tension between what was to be commemorated here. Of course, the firefighters, um, these were massive, spontaneous uh, thousands and thousands of wreaths laid at fire departments around the city. And that was actually the very first loss felt by the city. You know, some 357 firefighters you know, lost within, a, within two minutes. Some people said, preserve the destroyed site as it is, as the greatest memorial to what was lost. And I discouraged this because I said, in fact, um, if you leave it exactly as it is, you basically have created a memorial as the attackers would leave it to us. This is the memorial they've created for us. You know, we didn't invite this memorial. This was not made for us. This is not how we remember it. Do we want to remember all these loss, all these lives in the moment of their destruction, or do we want to remember these lives in the fullness of life lived and who they were? And so it was just a way to slow everybody down a little bit. So at every stage of memory, there was a moment when Giuliani would say, freeze it there. And then they keep cleaning up. Freeze this. Take this facade. Let this remember for everybody. But I said, it's OK. These are all stages. All of these things will become part of what we call the memorial here. Give yourself the time. Let, it, let the recovery, let the repair, let the empty void left behind all commemorate the terrible loss there. The firefighters, of course, saw this as a natural memorial for them, many of them from Irish Catholic families. And the Tribute and Light, which was shown six months after the attacks. Again, Tribute and Light. This was actually um, proposed uh, the year before as a, an artwork to celebrate and commemorate the anniversary of the World Trade Center Towers building. And now it's being used to commemorate their loss. Same, uh, Creative Time had commissioned this. Anita Contini, who'd been head of Creative Time, um, had commissioned this before. Anita Contini was then appointed to head the memorial jury, actually. The first anniversary was attended by all the families who read the names of all who were lost. And again, I said, this too is part of the memorial. 
Here are the names, the direct names of those who were lost. We still may not know the meaning of this, but we know that everybody, especially perhaps the administration, is interested in making very concrete meaning out of these for, for a very particular end, toward very particular ends. I said, yet another reason to keep that meaning somewhat underdetermined while we know that it, that it means absolute loss for those families. So that first anniversary, that was now cleared. Within one year, that site is cleared off, and they left two small reflecting ponds, which were then filled with flowers as people's, um, uh, the roll call of victims uh, called out by family members, each one taking a, a rose down and laying it in the reflecting pond. See the great, um, you know, kind of the, the so-called bathtub walls, um, which became kind of glorified in a way uh, by Liebeskind and his design later on as having heroically held back the waters of the Hudson River. But now we're at bedrock, basically, 70 feet below street level. <clears throat> and again, all the family members who knew what, what it meant. And then the very first designs, uh, the, last, the, the two final designs for the overall uh, site design competition uh, ended up with this design by the think team of Frederick Schwartz and Raphael Vignoli, uh, uh, among others, a team of architects based in New York, who proposed two kind of skeletal towers to replace the towers. Uh, but now these towers would commemorate, in effect, you know, the spaces in between the walls and the scaffolding, and um, uh, included as part of this design also the footprints now as voids, which is very interesting. They were not called upon to propose memorials, but they did propose as part of their design a memorial motif, including the footprints being articulated by these gigantic voids walled in. The winning design, however, uh, chosen um, somewhat arbitrarily and capriciously by the governor who walked in with these two finalists. Design. He had a report from the LMDC recommending the think team design but he looked at the Liebeskind design, which included hanging gardens, what he called a vertical world garden. Liebeskind's design also included this kind of asymmetrical spire recalling the torch of the Statue of Liberty, a very deliberate echo. Again, something that the governor liked very much. So we looked at these two and said, one recalls destruction, death, skeletons. The other one, hope, regeneration, life, liberty. In other words, so the governor said, we choose Liebeskind. And I, I have to say that was how it happened. The LMDC had chosen one. The governor came in with the families in mind and said, we choose this. And they went forward. Of course, subsequently, the Liebeskind design has been massively changed. Um, and and uh, he's been now made only 49% partner. David Childs uh, from Skidmore <clears throat> has now uh, come on as the master designer. But Liebeskind is still involved. But this was the the, the bathtub as Liebeskind left it in his design so that this would be an open space. And it was this space that we proposed when invited to uh, jury a gigantic competition for the memorial design downtown. This was the Liebeskind design <clears throat> again. And then in May, <clears throat> actually in April uh, 2003, we uh, were appointed uh, by the governor's office and the LMDC to a jury. The jury included Maya Lin and me, Vartan Gregorian, Michael Van Valkenburg, um, uh, Patty Harris, who was an assistant to the, 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 uh, the, the mayor at the time, Michael Bloomberg, 
and uh, uh, 12 altogether, 13 altogether, um, all, most of them professionals from the art world or architecture cultural historians uh, like me, but Maya Lin and I were the only memorialists. And this, of course, caught the eye of all the, the journalists who now came in to see, okay, exactly what influence is Maya Lin going to have on this jury? Is this going to be another Maya Lin memorial? And with Young on the jury, is it going to be another Holocaust memorial? And hence, you know, the beginning of that story. So I will just go here to where we, to the memorial itself. do it manually. This was the announcement of the design competition. This is Paula Grant Berry, the only family member uh, on the jury. Keep going. Um, it was an open and blind competition. We received uh, 5,201 designs from around the world, from uh, uh, 60 countries, and from every state in the, in the nation except for Alaska for some reason. We still don't know why. We spent the month of August and the 1st of September in the next uh, pictures, <clears throat> we'll just roll through them very fast, going through, uh, taking notes, pulling up passion votes, taking uh, designs that we didn't want to leave behind. Maybe we can keep going. Thanks. Looking at about 200 designs at a time at about a three-hour period and then going to the next stage and going to the next stage, leaving some behind, pulling some forward, voting on them, talking about them, free associating them. Uh, the Daily News said, um, this is impossible. There are 5,201 designs. If the jury is going to see every one of those, it's going to take them a month, 12 hours a day. You know, yeah, that's exactly what it took, a month, 12 hours a day, doing nothing but going through these until we had called first 250, then 50, and then eight finalists. Part of it um, was listening to the families who lost uh, members families, firefighters' families in particular. So we'd get up on a stage and they would just talk to us. Part of it was also just uh, talking and sharing our thoughts with the mayor here, with the governor, Maya Lynn and the governor talking, me, Michael Van Valkenburg on the left. And again, they're not telling us what to do. In fact, they all said that we want you to choose it completely. This is completely in your hands. Uh, Bloomberg took Maya and me to lunch one day and said, um, look, I just want to hear your thoughts. So we told him what we were thinking, and after two hours, he said, okay, and he led us out of, out of his offices, put his arms around us, patted us on the shoulders, and said, well, kids, I think you're the right ones for the job, but please, please don't screw it up. Those last words as we left. <laughs> this was at the mayor's... Uh, Mansion, Gracie Mansion, which he kind of gave over to us. So we were kind of sequestered there with the finalists coming in. Lots of uh, eating, lots of drinking of only New York wine. Uh, blasphemy. <laughs> only Bloomberg would know where to find good New York wine now, I have to say. And then some of the very finalists, but I want to get to reflecting absence here. Um, this was actually a proposal in which they, they wanted to replant the entire five acres only in, with fruit trees and leaving open the footprints as kind of a, a mille de fleur, kind of a, a wildflower garden. We loved actually the idea of the plantings uh, as a way to uh, recall, in fact, that uh, death itself is made a part of the natural cycle. And remember that this is a, this is a very different kind of commemoration than we found in Berlin, these are really victims remembering their own. 
in which case they want to redeem this loss. They need to compensate the loss. They need reinsurance. They need uh, to be uh, consoled somehow, unlike the Germans, which felt that to console themselves about the Holocaust would be somehow to extend the crime, to per perpetrate the crime, and then find consolation in it would be exactly to reproduce Hitler's own, anti uh, own redemptory kind of anti-Semitism. So Michael Arad and Peter Walker's design included these two gigantic voids with voids, further voids built in the middle. The trees would fill in, create uh, still further volumes of the voids in a way, and it would also defeat kind of that open superblock plaza, which everybody hated about the World Trade Center plaza. And the motif here being that here in this site, there would be both absence commemorated and articulated and regeneration of life. This was a place where the, the, where the motto for the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation was renew, rebuild, remember. And so that renew, rebuild, remember was now going to find a form in voids which remember the loss and the absence now, but would now renew it with trees, find something regenerative. Trees, of course, is something that, that uh, you, you plant um, in order to tend and they become a kind of a memorial commemorative form which need to be tended. Uh, Tadeo Ando proposed planting 250,000 uh, blooming Mongolias to commemorate the Kobe earthquake in 1995, and this is called um, the Green Network. It is the memorial for that Kobe earthquake. earthquake. He said, I want a memorial that people have to take care of, to tend, to find life in, one that also uh, will um, kind of express life cycles, a blooming, living, dying. And here, uh, you would go underneath and be able to see the sky through these kind of the, the walls of falling water. There is this movement that, uh, that we talked about. We didn't want to be literal here. We did not choose, as you see, a gigantic you know, apple or airplanes crashing into buildings. And we saw all kinds of designs like that. But one, in fact, which suggested the, the absence left behind. But in this downward movement, there is a little bit of the sense of the falling buildings. It's just a, it's an echo, but just, we thought, indirect enough to be palatable. The families uh, would be able to come all the way to bedrock, uh, where there would be a vessel um, uh, symbolically containing the remains of uh, unidentified victims. But those remains, in fact, would be, be behind the wall on the other side. But there, they would be able to lay wreaths and commemorate their absence here. This is how the building has evolved and the site has evolved. I'm trying to get one more up. Oh. Okay. And again, this is now the, the, the so-called final version of the building itself, which has now had to accommodate itself a little bit to the memorial. It wasn't clear at first what would come first, the memorial design or the, the buildings around it. The buildings came first, the memorial was built, now the buildings have had now to respond to the memorial. The memorial is under construction, due to be unveiled in uh, 2009, and the, the Freedom Tower, the tallest tower here, is now due, it's, it's also under construction, but not really due to be finished probably until 2011 or 12 at the earliest. And so this is the very latest iteration um, of, of what we have. I'd like to end with a, a couple images of, um, my kids taken from what's called the family room uh, at the LMDC offices. 
There's a room in which families can come 24 hours a day where they leave mementos, diaries, teddy bears, um, photographs of their lost loved ones. And um, it was only here. I was very curious to see how you know, my children, for example, would understand this site. And they only understood this site when they could view it through the pictures and the belongings of the lost loved ones. At that moment, they understood that the site was not just about lost and void, but about the lives that had been taken away. That as long as you think of both in the same moment and remember together but separately in these sites, um, the memorial, in fact, stays alive in the minds of those who visit. With that, I'll end, and I'm glad to take questions. So thank you very much for listening so well. I want to thank James so much for coming and talking to us. Um, he's completing a book called Memory at Ground Zero, a juror's report on the World Trade Center site memorial. And he's also editor-in-chief of the Posen Library of Jewish Culture and Civilization, which will be forthcoming from Yale. He's, for me, a personal example of uh, one of my favorite phrases, Mikol Melamdai Hiskalti. I have learned so much from my students. He's willing to take questions. We have a couple of minutes. If you have a question, come and ask it into the microphone. I know we're destroying the schedule of the University of California. Uh, by doing this, but we have him here for a couple more minutes. Questions? Uh, my name is Ricardo. Um, I just wondered if you've been a part of any memorials, if any, there would be in Soviet Russia for um, the 40 to 60 million um, Christians and Jews and um, peasants and people alike um, who were exterminated uh, between 1917 and even up into the mm -hmm. 1980s? Mm -hmm. And if there is nothing, why not? Well, as you know, during, um, until 89, um, there was no place in kind of a, a Soviet history, um, especially for the mass uh, starvations um, of the peasants. <clears throat> and, and you're exactly right. I mean, tens of millions uh, were starved to death quite deliberately and murdered uh, in, those, in those early years. And then, of course, after World War II, there just wasn't, um, uh, Stalin in particular had to play it fairly carefully. Um, the Soviet Union was clearly the biggest loser in World War II. Um, we now know by the records that probably somewhere uh, between 30 and 40 million Soviet citizens died in World War II. Uh, there was POWs ma uh, killed in mass or starved to death. Um, Several million Jews uh, killed, uh, mass murdered. Um, but it was not in Stalin's interest anyway to allow that number <laughs> to be part of the Soviet narrative. That's too many. 20 million, however, was enough to show that the Soviets clearly were the first victim <laughs> and took the, the worst loss. 40 million would suggest his incompetence. <laughs> 
at preventing more from being killed in a way. So these, these numbers were very much uh, spun and, and mastered you know, by, by the um, Soviet authorities at the time. Soviet Jews killed during the war um, were not remembered um, as, as Jews, but really as, as Soviets first and foremost, killed because they were you know, in the Soviet Union. Um, there were local small memorials by Jewish families who remembered themselves being killed or the families being killed as Jewish families, but there was always this uh, tension, but no place in the Soviet narrative for this. Only now uh, I know that there are plans for a Jewish museum in Moscow. Uh, they do not suppress kind of spontaneous family memorials to the Holocaust there. And I know that uh, the remains of some of these um, communities uh, which had been more or less wiped out early on, are trying to devise memorials, but they're also in this building stage. There's a way in which, in order to go on, they almost need to forget how bad it was. And so that there's, I think there's a constant tension between forgetting and remembering in any kind of state enterprise like this. So there's no specific answer, but I have been asked to consult with museums and things around uh, the Soviet Union, but they have a hard time raising money for all these things, and I think they're more interested in rebuilding now than in recalling the past. Thank you, James. I guess we have to stop because people have other classes other to go classes. to, although this is so important. So uh, have a good weekend. And again, thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Thank you for listening.